you heard of Stonehenge? Yeah. Yeah, so I grew up about five minutes from Stonehenge. Really? <laughs> yeah, that's that's how I sort of uh, tell people where I'm from, just because right. no one's heard of that and no one's heard of the small town I'm from, yeah. Uh, so what does it feel like, or what were you guys' thoughts? Is like, oh, we have this huge, like, tourist trap right next to our yeah. town. What, what are all these people I mean, just out there doing all the time? Yeah, it's just, I feel like everyone comes to see it, and, yeah, when you live on the doorstep of something like that you just don't you don't care about it at all um the my secondary school i went to was actually called the stonehenge school so that's how like close we were i don't know this is probably a good question i've i've been there i've done the typical tourist things in in the uk yeah. but what what is stonehenge um it's like a, a prehistoric stone circle no one really sure knows. It wow, it's it's old. <laughs> it's either that or an alien landing site. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> All right, but that's not why we're here to talk today. No, <laughs> of course. So, Sam, welcome to Downrange. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk today, Thanks and get everybody uh, caught up with your story because it's truly a fascinating one and and very unique to say the least. So, I met you. I guess we'd say a month or so back now yeah. uh, up in New York when you're here for the Simpson Cup. So yeah. I guess we can start there. What is the Simpson Cup? What were you in the States for? And then we'll uh, go back to childhood and, and start from the good, good stuff. Okay, so the Simpson Cup is a Ryder Cup style tournament against um, injured servicemen and veterans from uh, the United Kingdom and the States. Uh, run over two days. There's a four balls day and a singles day. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's just a brilliant competition. Um, it's, yeah, it's like the pinnacle of sort of pinnacle of sort of the sport I play now. Uh, all the members are all the members of the teams are from a charity called the On Course Foundation, uh, which aims to get um, wounded and injured servicemen and veterans into the game of golf um, and, if need be, into employment in the golf industry. When did you get started with the On Course Foundation? Okay, so um, I joined the On Course Foundation in 2013 um, after I got injured in Afghanistan in 2012. Um, I was sort of just going through my rehab and recovery and um, yeah, I think I was on a break from um, sort of one of my stints of rehab and I went to this taste today with the On Course Foundation um, just to sort of see if golf was something I wanted to do or, you know, just essentially just to keep busy and sort of off time because there's nothing else to do. And yeah, it's from there I got the bug. Um, so I've been playing golf since 2013. Um, Wait, you yeah. didn't play before that? So I played a little bit uh, growing up. I had a set of clubs, um, but, it, you know, I played several sports. So growing up, golf was just kind of like a hobby. You know, I feel like everyone grows up with a set of clubs in the garage um, or at home somewhere. So it was just something I'd occasionally play, but never really took seriously. And then we talked about, or you touched a little bit, your injury in 2012. Yes. So walk me through what what happened. Um, so about five and a half months into a six-month deployment in Afghanistan. It's usually um, when <laughs> it happens. Right? Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we'd been on um, an op for about two weeks to um, insert sort of push the Taliban sort of north out of the area we were operating in um, and put in some police checkpoints and sort of overall sort of give better security to the area. Um, we're on just a sort of routine foot patrol in the area. I was point man, which is to say sort of commander of the patrol tells me which direction to sort of go in. And then it's up to me to sort of pick the best route um, and the sort of safest route as I sort of see fit. Um, we're crossing in between a couple irrigation ditches, um, which were sort of filled with water. And it was in between these, as I sort of stepped down to sort of go into the next irrigation ditch, 
is when I um, activated a pressure plate IED. And did you yeah, feel it? Um, no, I didn't feel it. I just, it was sort of one thing I took a step forward with my left foot. And then the next thing, you know, sort of, I can remember a bang. And then I'm sort of sat there, sort of where I was just sort of standing um, in a bit of sort of shock, not really knowing sort of what was what. So as point man for, you know, your platoon that's out there, do you guys have, you know, we, we, we have like EOD. So like uh disposable, you know, uh, explosives guys that are with us that anytime there's a choke point or a crossing point that we're coming up to, we'll call them up. We have dogs that'll come up and, and sniff if we need to. Do you guys have that in like your standard platoon makeup? Um, yeah, but so sort of, yeah, in a platoon makeup, we'd have we'd have a dog um, with us. Not we wouldn't have EOD normally. Yep. Um, but sort of, I'm guessing it's the same for you. We carry our, we'll carry um, sort of minesweepers. Yeah, yeah. In the sort of broadest um, sense of the word as well. So I had one of them on my back, and we didn't have a dog with us on that particular patrol. Um, and yeah, we sort of kind of, it was just like I say, routine. Sort of down to, yeah, routine down to my best judgment. Yeah. Um, and I didn't, I, I thought um, I'd pick the hardest place to cross, which is what you're sort of trained to do. Yep. Um, don't pick easy crossings, things like that, because that's where they'll get you. And I thought I had um, hindsight, probably probably would have chased somewhere else, but that's a wonderful thing, wonderful thing about hindsight, isn't it? Yeesh. So from that day in 2012, so you trigger the pressure point. Yeah. You, you feel, I mean, do you feel anything? No, so at the at first, I sort of obviously I knew something had you know I remembered a bang, something had happened, but I just remember thinking, looking down, seeing both my legs and feet still there, yeah, thinking if that was me, something would be missing. You know, that was my sort of thought. If if I step on something, you're going to know straight away because something's going to be missing. So initially. Uh, I sort of looked down a bit of my trouser leg was torn up, but really not much at all. Um, so I thought it was my, my, um, my friend behind me who had stood on it. So I sort of went to, it was on a sort of little bit of a slip. I went to push up and imagine if you're sort of sitting down, you use your heels, don't you? And your hands to push on the ground um, to stand up. And then I just remember as soon as I put force through my left foot, I think I remember thinking, nope, it's definitely me, definitely me. Who's just stood on that. Um, but it was all contained within my boot um so i had no i didn't have a scratch on me above i had a small bit of shrapnel in my right leg sort of halfway up my calf and that was it not scratch scratch on me above it was all just sort of contained um sort of in my left boot so um yeah very lucky medic ran straight forward um sort of got to me i explained where it was i'd already put a tourniquet on sort of just below my knee um and yeah, sort of they dragged me back over the irrigation ditch and started doing first aid on me. And it's when they took my boot is when sort of you could see the extent of the da- uh, extent of the damage. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until that point I really sort of knew what had happened or what the injuries were. Call in medevac, I'm guessing immediately. And where'd they take you to? Yeah, so I think within 15 minutes, um, there was a, a Chinook on the ground. Um the rest of the patrol would sort of put me on a stretcher, first aid on the back of the medevac, um, on the back of the MERT, which is the med- medical sort of evacuation sort of team. Um, yeah, and then I was back in Camp Bastion, which is sort of part of your sort of very family. familiar with it. Yeah, um, not as cookhouses aren't as good as yours there, but <laughs> no, I don't know about that. I would go to the your guys' chow hall all the time. No, we always used to sneak down to Levenek for food. <laughs> That's actually um, where, I, where I saw the uh, the prince quite a few times. He flew oh, yeah. missions for us. So, anyway, nice. About the same time too, 2012, which is this weird, unique timing. This whole entire thing. Yeah. So at the at the the time of injury, did you feel anything? No. No pain. Really. No. No. Not not a massive amount i think so it was a little bit but right 
but your body does this, a phenomenal job of protecting you and making sure that you're still lucid and everything until you're actually to safety. Yeah. And I'm sure that by the time you got onto the Chinook and, and were being flown back to Bastion, that's probably where a ton of it was setting in. But ultimately that's probably the first time that you got some really good drugs to take care of it. Yeah. So actually on the back of the chopper back, sort of with, I mean, it was like a 10 minute flight or if that, right. I'm not sure. I remember half of, so I've been on it a while and I was sort of laying there and there's just sort of like a few doctors or nurses around me, medics. And I remember asking them, like, oh, so when are you going to knock me out? Like, cause I just assumed I've been really badly injured, but knock me out. Next thing I know I'd be in England. And they're like, oh no, no, you're not that bad. You don't need knocking out. I was like, not that bad. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, in the grand scheme of things, like I wasn't that bad. Um, and yeah, go back to the um, roll three, which is the hospital in Camp Bastion. And then um, I remember being handed a phone, and I think it was my dad on the other line. I think they'd called him up and had sort of been that quick to tell him. Um, that may have come after, sort of. I had a surgery. I'm not sure. But um, and what were they treating? So uh, completely, uh, probably multiple, multiple injuries but broken ankle broken lower portion of your your leg yeah so um from the ankle down on my left foot everything was sort of shattered if you looked at it like on x-ray it just looked like a jigsaw puzzle you know bones everywhere and um the actual blast had gone like ripped almost ripped my heel clean off it was sort of attacked by um my achilles tendon um so they were kind of in that hospital they were just trying to piece me back together keep it as sort of together as as they could and make it look as much like a foot as possible i guess um so i had six or seven k wires put through the foot to sort of keep everything in place and then sort of heavily bandaged up um and i think that's pretty much all they did really out there and the prognosis was going to be you're going to be okay you're going to keep your foot it's going to be a long long road to get this healed up but you're going to be fine and you're eventually you're going to walk again um it was a question mark essentially they they were, they were very honest they said we don't know like we'll do our best to save it but we we're just not going to know and it was it was kind of like that for a few years really um they were sort of saying we'll keep working we'll keep working to manage the pain and um but it was always for a good few years it was kind of um we don't know whether you know you will it will deteriorate really quickly and you'll lose it quickly or, or what. But initially they were sort of very honest and said, you may wake up from this surgery without foot. And I had a few surgeries when I got back to England as well. And each one, they said the same thing. Um, so I was sort of fully expecting the worst, but they laid it out on the table for me. And that started like a, a really long road. I, I guess from the beginning, did you want to keep your foot? <clears throat> So, yeah, I initially I sort of thought, oh, I've got it. And, you know, it's um, it looked like a foot. You know, there's a few holes in it and I have a few wires sticking out of it, but it looked like a foot. So initially it was like, OK, this is, you know, I'm going to keep my foot. I'm going to work my way back. I'm going to get back into my unit eventually. Um, I really I think initially I did think I would sort of, you know, stay in the army. Uh, rejoined my unit but um yeah it was just sort of that, that was sort of um that was sort of where my mind was really and it started like this really really long process of getting to like you where you are not just now but a couple years back when you did make the decision finally to to amputate it yeah yeah so I think I did three years of initial rehab um, while still in the army. Um, and that was sort of a couple of months stints every, um, every few months at Headley court, which is our uh, sort of rehab place. And each one, it was sort of making progress, slow progress. Um, you know, it was sort of tough at times seeing, seeing the sort of amputees come through and, you know, they're walking within a sort of couple of months. And then I was still sort of in a wheelchair, not really sort of putting any weight on my foot. Um, so I think I had six weeks, six months, sorry, without any weight bearing. Um, so it was tough seeing people sort of fly past me. 
Um, but yeah, I did three years initial sort of rehab there before I let before I um, sort of got medically discharged from the army. But my treatment continued um, over the years, um, just back out on um, on Civvy Street. And then talk me through the process of I guess when you made the decision or who made the decision to say, Hey, this, the quality of life that I'm looking for just isn't going to be possible with this. Yeah. So like I said, I continued seeing a consultant after I'd left the military, um, is a really good surgeon. Um, and she ran like a war injuries clinic. Um, so a lot of guys, uh, amputees and things like that would go to her for, um, sort of touch up surgeries, things like that. Um, so she was really good. But for a few years, when 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 I left the army in 2015, I was managing the pain. Um, I could do everything I wanted to do. Um, so I was living a good quality of life and I was sort of happy with where I was. I was on painkillers, but I, I knew when to push myself and if I'd done too much. Um, but it got to around 2018 um, when it started to like sort of the pain started to increase, started to able... Um, not able to do as much as I was. Um, so for instance, I'd play a round of golf in a buggy and then, you know, I couldn't do much for two days after. So sort of quality of life was going downhill when I was still seeing this surgeon um, who's sort of fairly local to me. And it just sort of, we tried different things. Uh, we tried steroid injection, injections. Um, there was sort of two options left on the table by the end of it. Um, one was to fuse the midfoot, um, so to take out all movement, um, and then the other was sort of an amputation. Um, I was getting a lot of pain still through the, my heel because it was so badly damaged. A lot of the pain I was getting was through my heel. Um, so I thought the fusion would help one part of the pain but not the rest, and I didn't want to go through six months to a year of rehabbing a fused, a fused foot only to end up amputating anyway so we sort of just we made the made the decision to sort of go ahead and and amputate in probably i think around july 2019 i made that decision you, you just woke up one day and said these are my options let's let's take it off i'm sick of i, I fought this thing for eight years almost and yeah let's just yeah it was, it was it was a gradual decision and it was one that sort of i think was made easier for me by unfortunately having lot, lots of mates who right. are amputees. Um, but you see what they're able to do. And I was, and I sort of thought I could, you know, if I do amputate, it's not like I'm going to be stuck doing nothing. I can do everything still. And, and I, I assume you're talking free. to a lot of the guys that are on the on course with you. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. A lot of them. And, um, you know, sort of military humor, a lot of them at the start just just get rid of it straight away right much better um but yeah I, I you know i asked them for advice i'd seen um like mike brown who you've had on he he lived close to me at the time um and he had elected to obviously have his off and he he's a bit different because his his was a uh, fruny whereas mine's baloney but um i knew that if i made the decision i would um i'd be able to sort of live live my life again potentially completely pain-free um so talking to those guys uh, my girlfriend my family things like that um sort of kind of made the decision it was a gradual decision but it was one that i think from the moment the sort of two options were put on the table for me amputation or fusion it was one i i think in my head i'd made straight away so you had the the foot amputated and then how long did it take you to kind of figure out what's going on get used to no longer having the limb there and then and then get into prosthetics yeah so january 2020 i i had my amputation um i still can't believe how recent this whole thing is. <laughs> yeah um yeah it's not it's not even sort of two years um two years ago but yeah january 2020 I had my amputation. I was in hospital for, I think, I had it done on Friday. I was out by Tuesday. So no, like next to no time at all. Whereas when I originally got in, injured, I was in hospital for a month. So um, straight away, I'm sort of thinking, oh, this is better than better already. 
um it was a bit weird to start with um like because you can still a lot of people talk about phantom pains and phantom sensation um and yeah initially i was sort of you could feel i could feel my toes i could wiggle my toes the physios would get you to sort of wiggle it just to sort of get the nerves used to it i guess um but what was funny was because my foot before was so badly damaged um i didn't have a lot of movement in the ankle or all the foot for that matter once i'd had it amputated and i was had these phantom sensations where i could feel my foot i felt like i could move my foot more than i could for like the last five years it was really really strange um but yeah so hospital for four days got the go ahead to get a my first sort of casting for a prosthetic i think i think it was probably around mid to end february so sort of six weeks or so after they said you can you know it's healed up enough you can start get cast in for a leg and then i got my first leg actually the first week we went into lockdown because of uh the coronavirus which wasn't great timing but um you know i was able to get it which was good and um the sort of prosthetic center stayed open for emergency appointments so i could sort of have a little bit of physio sort of every couple of weeks just to make sure i was sort of walking okay and and learning all right just crazy you haven't even been on your prosthetic for that long no so yeah so march i think sometime in march i got my first leg towards the end of march i think it probably was so what are we in now november so yeah for sort of 20 months or so not long at all but i think because i'm below knee i've still got my knee which is like massive in in right. terms of sort of amputation things like that i think that if i was going to lose my knee with the amputation i may have sort of thought a little bit harder but having the knee is massive so learning to walk again has been it's been easier this time than it was sort of first time around when i still had my foot so yeah um it's not taken long at all really do you miss it no no no, no. so everything's, everything's better ever so i'm i get all the pain i was in before gone all the um all the painkillers i was on before gone so i'm on no painkillers i don't really get any pain well no pain before i get the occasional stump pain but that's again it's it's been less than two years so it's still everything's still settling down but apart from that like the odd little bit of niggles here and there um everything is better before everything is better than before yeah and it's amazing how like quickly you just become accustomed to like living with it you know there's a there's a little bit more admin in the mornings and and things like that and sort of taking it off putting it back on things like that washing showering but yeah apart from that you just get used to that and it just becomes part of your daily routine Where were you born? What was your childhood like? Um, so I was born actually in Germany. My dad was in the army. Um, so I was born in a small town somewhere in Germany called Wegberg. Um, yeah, and I lived there until I was about three. And then my dad got posted back to England. And we grew up in a small town called Amesbury, which um, I sort of mentioned earlier. Um, Stonehenge it's right next door to Stonehenge most people have heard of that um or if not google it <laughs> um and yeah that's where I sort of grew up what did he do in the military so he was a staff clerk so he's always sort of worked um in headquarters and things like that he's done a lot of sort of as his time sort of went on he's worked for a lot of generals um organizing a lot of things for them um, big events um so yeah he did his full 22 years um regular service and then he did another 20 years as what we call full-time reserve service so he was like a reservist but working full-time sort of on sort of three-year contracts for the army so all in all he's done about i think he did about 44 years wow yeah. retired now 
he is retired now yeah you can tell you can tell he spent 44 years in the army because he doesn't know what to do with himself now <laughs> <laughs> i bet yeah so what was it like growing up in a, a military household i guess um it was i don't know a lot of my friends like the area i grew up in there's a lot of military so a lot of my friends are from military families so it was just sort of normal really um i didn't yeah it didn't we weren't like on a camp or anything like that my parents bought their own house um and yeah it just it felt like a normal childhood um sort of no nothing really exciting happened small town in the country played sports went to school um got into the occasional bit of trouble but but like nothing nothing exciting really happened were you that kid growing up that's like hey this is my dad was in the military for this long i'm gonna join the military i think deep down yeah i always i always sort of thought i'm gonna join the army um my plan was so we finished school at 16 um over here and then you can sort of stay on for another two years until you're 18 if you want and then go to sort of university so i had my place at college which is those extra two years um i can't remember what i was going to study but it was sort of july term starts in september I had my place it was july and then i just thought sort of thought to myself oh, you know what i don't really want to do two more years of education right now and i was good in school I, I, I had good grades i enjoyed it i was like i don't want to do two more years right now i'd rather go and do something fun be active a uh, bit of adventure so i decided to not go to college and sort of join the army straight away i think obviously our recruiting works a little bit different um to sort of you guys we have like an army army recruiting office of yep. RAF, air force one and, and a navy one and there was i think it was always going to be army i wasn't interested in the air force or the navy um what, what job role i wanted to do in the army was sort of up for up for debate but yeah i always wanted to it was always going to be army straight away so what job did you end up going with so I joined a um, heavy armor unit, um, so the sort of Challenger two tanks, which is sort of Abrams equivalent. Yep. Uh, sort of cavalry regiment. All our regiments are sort of steeped in like hundreds and hundreds of years of sort of tradition. So actually, the, yeah, not, not our history <laughs> yeah. that goes back more than a couple of years. I get it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I joined a cavalry regiment called uh, the King's Royal Hussars, um, which sounds very fancy and all our officers were very sort of fancy posh people um but i just joined as a regular soldier despite what everyone everyone thinks i sound posh but <laughs> i don't think i do i probably do but um so you're saying you fit in very well with your officers that probably helped you a little I, bit i got on well with them yeah 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 <laughs> um but yeah so i joined as a sort of just a regular tank crewman um much to the so, sort of try to describe to people like so what was your job so initially um i i did my gunnery course first so i was a tank gunner to start with which means i was in charge of um sort of firing the gun maintaining the gun um finding targets things like that it's basically like playing a playstation the control is pretty much the same it's all designed to be sort of easy for you sort of young people young people to use so yeah i essentially played playstation in a tank <laughs> so so funny to think about but very true yeah um but no it's good fun so i did my gunnery course first um and then you also do like a signals course so you learn how to use the radios and things like that um and you do maintenance on the tank uh, maintaining the firing system maintaining the sights um all that sort of good stuff and then i went on and did my sort of driving course after that um, which is where you obviously sort of learn to drive a tank, maintain the engines, things like that. Um, and that came second. And then I learned how to um, become what we call an operator in the tank, which is the loader. Um, it's kind of sort of second in command in the tank. Um, he's in charge of loading the gun um, and sort of maintaining the radios, really. Um, and if the commander goes down, he's sort of in charge. So he's the most sort of senior um, sort of guy in the tank, apart from the commander. Um, and that sort of made me what we call a full crewman. And that was all over a space of sort of two or three years. It didn't sort of all happen one after the other. You sort of do a little bit on that role 
Um, so like I did a bit gunning and then I sort of um, and then went and did my driving course and then I, then I was a driver for a bit and then a sort of uh, operator. And what year was this? So I got to my regiment as a gunner in 2009, May 2009. And then I think by the end of the year, I did my driving course and then sort of somewhere 2010, uh, late in 2010, I think I did my I did my operator's course. So what do you, what's life like when you're just home going through training? Um, what sort of at regiment or, um, you sort of, I guess like, like for a lot of units in the sort of military, um, sort of our military and yours as well, a lot of fizz, um, PT, but sort of day to day it's, you go up the tank park and you're sort of carrying out maintenance on the tanks, um, day in, day out. So, um, and it's surprising how often they break and uh, how often you have to fix the thing you've only just fixed without the tank moving. Um, but I feel like that's every bit of kit in the military, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And we'd sort of go on it, deploy an exercise um, where we were based is a large sort of training area. So we'd take the tanks and we'd sort of deploy for a couple of weeks, live off them. Um, in between, we deployed to South Africa as well as uh, on exercise for four weeks um we sort of deployed as infantry then um because the sort of saying goes you're you're an infantry soldier first um before you sort of trade and we also went to canada i think 2011 um on exercise on the tanks as well as a big training area out there what are you doing with the tanks in canada so you kind of you fit them up with something called tez which is basically a sort of um sort of electronic sort of sensor system you put in a barrel, you put all over your tank, and you essentially have a big game of like laser laser tag yeah. with other tanks and enemy forces. Yeah, so um, it's not as fun as it sounds because everything always breaks. It's <laughs> a lot sort of stop start. You get bogged in out on the area. You have to get recovered. Um, but no, yeah. So that's what we did for. I can't think how long we were out there for. Six weeks or so um, on exercise, living off the wagons. You sort of learn into um to sort of do all that and then um yeah and that was it really did a bit of live firing out there with them so the whole time you guys are still training like a, a traditional artillery or armor excuse me regiment and yeah. thinking that we have to be ready at any point in time if there's a massive invasion and we're gonna do you know typical tank maneuvers across the battlefield yeah 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 so it's all very sort of what you call sort of conventional warfare yep. um <clears throat> big sort of tank on tank battles or um sort of going through villages things like that clearing sort of villages from your tank um so it's all very much sort of conventional warfare um like you say yeah and then you guys are still doing like normal basic infantry tactics and stuff on the side yeah so they they'd always sort of we'd do the occasional because the cost of running a tank is astronomical so right. um and there's always a budget isn't there with sort of things in the military um so yeah so we do bits um bits as infantry soldiers um sort of continuation training i guess sort of brushing up on your basic soldier skills um but we always knew that we were deploying to afghanistan in 2012 and we always knew that we were going to deploy as infantry so i think after canada which must have been early, early 2011. Once we once we got back from Canada on the tanks, we sort of switched straight over to becoming an infantry unit, and that's where the sort of training became a lot more Afghanistan sort of focused. And were there people that were in your unit that were had already deployed before? Yeah, so um, I think we had a squadron go out in 2009 or 2008, and then I think a few people went out quite early doors sort of around 2003 uh, 2004 um so there was experience there but obviously the sort of game changes um when they deployed in 2009 they were on vehicles um as sort of armored taxi vehicles really um but yeah there was there was experience there so you excited to deploy hmm. yeah i um yeah i was uh, well i say it's sort of good because the we were supposed to go to Iraq in 2009. Um, and I think they were going, I can't remember when in 2009, but 
I was gutted that I was going to miss it because my birthday, my 18th birthday isn't until August. So when I got to unit in 2009, I was still 17. I think I got in in May. Um, so I wouldn't have deployed with them. And I was really sort of annoyed about not being able to go. It turns out they didn't go in anyway. But yeah, I remember being really annoyed um, about not being able to go because you do all this training. But at the end of the day, unless you deploy, you, you're not actually doing your job. You're sort of, it's just training. And I joined the army to sort of do the job. So yeah, I was, um, I was really excited to go. So what did your guys' normal, like your pre-deployment workup look like? Um, I can't really remember now. <laughs> um, then it was a lot of learning. Um, I guess like the new way of fighting, a lot of right. fighting in built-up areas, things like that. Um, weapons training, um, predominantly being a sort of heavy army unit, not our um, the sort of heaviest weapons we'd sort of normally use, obviously because we're normally on our tanks um the heaviest weapon apart from the main main sort of gun on those tanks is the gpmg which what do you guys m60 yep m60 machine 240 gun. now but yeah 240 sorry yep. um yeah that's like so that was as much as pretty much most the sort of regiment were um training. there was a lot of learning uh weapons training with the 50s uh gmgs um a lot of people sort of then went on and did sharpshooter courses learning to drive all the new vehicles we'd have out there um i somehow passed a test to go do a pashtu language course um so i missed i missed out on all the fun stuff and i just had to sit in a room sit in a classroom and learn another language um but yeah it was all sort of gearing up to sort of afghanistan focused did you guys know where you were going to like where in afghanistan uh we had a rough sort of area obviously we knew it was going to be Helmand. um and we sort of knew our rough AO, the sort of nearer the time, um, it got a bit more precise where we'd be. Um, so yeah, um, we sort of knew sort of where we'd go and, and what it'd been like, um, sort of trouble spots, things like that. So what was deployment life like? Um, sort of small, small bursts of excitement, long periods of boredom. <laughs> How long were you guys set to deploy for? Six months. So, yeah, sort of British Army. We only we only do six month deployments as opposed to you guys are like a year, aren't you? Well, it all depends on the unit. Some are yeah. a little bit longer, yeah. some are shorter. Like I, I only did short deployments as well, but you know, you do a ton of them after a while, it it adds yeah. up quickly. So, what, I guess what was what would you say your guys' primary task is? You mentioned it a little bit earlier. Is that basically? Mm clearing land establishing some new uh amp checkpoints and and trying to do yeah. your part in making the best out of southern afghanistan yeah so we we knew of certain sort of trouble spots um where it, it changed really some sometimes we'd go out and patrol and it's just um sort of interacting with the locals speaking to sort of um i guess like higher up sort of families in the area finding out what we can do what we can help them with How'd all that posture training help you out? Uh, not one bit. (laughs) (laughs) I could, I, I could say, well, I could speak a handful of phrases, um, but trying to understand, understand them, they speak so much faster than you're learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. way Um, too fast. Slow down, slow down. Yeah, and and like loads of slang as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was just you'd hear like certain words. I'd sit in on, um like sure as and i'd just be like uh to my boss i'm like boss why am i here like i'm no good to you <laughs> like um but i think a lot of it was sort of if i'm there as well if if sort of you've got a dodgy interpreter or you know it's just saying basically they don't need to know that i don't really understand what they're saying it's just sort of um i guess like showing them you know look we know what you're saying so don't try and sort of put anything past us Right. But yeah, I, I had not a clue, um, but I got I got like an extra fifteen hundred pounds for doing the course, so it wasn't all bad. Oh, you got some uh, extra language pay. Yeah. That's good. It worked out. Taxed on it though. I got yeah. taxed on it. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Everybody's always going to get their taxes. Don't forget yeah. about that. <clears throat> yeah, but yeah, sort of patrols sort of range from interacting with locals to 
showing like a show of force in the area sort of clearing them back we had there's a sort of little village just up from our patrol base which was sort of a known sort of taliban hotspot um so we'd sort of patrol there quite regularly um and yeah if anything sort of out of the ordinary sort of popped up on iStar and sort of satellite imaging you know you'd then go to that area the next day and and sort of again yeah like I say sh show a force clear trying to clear the area out sort of bring on a bit of a firefight sometimes just so you can then you know you you have a sort of an idea of who's operating in the area any uh funny stories from the deployment um oh, i'm not sure there's a good couple times sort of people we had this one guy in our um in our sort of multiple and he was a little short stocky guy um and he would he would carry some big heavy sort of uh ecm you know electronic countermeasures sort of kit and trying to cross irrigation ditches you just knew every time so some of them sort of get quite wide don't you got to do a little bit of a running i say a run with all the kit you carry you can't really run but a little shuffle and jump to try and get across and every time you'd know he just wouldn't be able to make it and every time you knew he was going straight in that irrigation ditch. <laughs> um but yeah i'm trying to think funny stories um no i can't really they're probably what there's probably loads at the time but i just can't right. remember yeah so what did you what did you learn of yourself on the deployment though um and ultimately not the the ending that you wanted or ever really imagined but there's tons of things looking back that i'm sure you could be like you know what i did that not yeah. a lot of people can say that they did that that they've been there that they put up with the shit yeah i quite often sort of say and i guess i kind of say it half jokingly but not joking you know not many people can say they've been to war um and you know the experience that just gives you sets you up sort of especially on a sort of combat deployment as well um the experience that gives you in handling situations in sort of day-to-day -day normal life is invaluable i think all right so you came home you you started going through your injuries and you you signed up and started going to some of the encore seminars Yes. So what did that process kind of look like for you? You you picked up the game and from the get-go, you're like, hey, this is something that I can really get into, something that I actually enjoy. Yeah, so I think the first one-day event I went to, I was in my wheelchair, and I remember sort of just kind of like hitting five irons, you know, just sort of chipping five irons around. Um, and thinking, oh, this is, you know, this is fun. But I didn't really like ever think anything more of it. But then I think probably about, six weeks after that i did another one day event with them and i was up on my feet this time um i had like a big sort of boot on um to sort of take a take a lot of the load off but i was on my feet and i remember sort of being on the range and hitting golf balls um and it's that sort of cliche of like you catch one nice and then you think or it gets you hooked doesn't it and and it's sort of cliche for a reason i guess but um yeah i, I remember that happening and i had a few friends who played anyway so i thought oh maybe you know when I can get my foot in a shoe again, maybe I'll go out on the golf course with them. And yeah, I sort of did that, played a few rounds with them and attended a few of the three-day events with the On Course Foundation, which is much about sort of the golf as it is the social. Um, you're there with other injured guys. Um, you know, most of are sort of probably worse than you or, you know, there's a considerable amount there who have got worse injuries than you. And people have been living with these injuries for like 10, 15 years. So you get a real sort of idea of, oh, actually, you know, not all's lost. Um, yeah, and it sort of just snowballed from there. I attended, I don't know, God knows how many three-day events that, that first year of playing. But I played a lot of golf um, in between my rehab because there's just nothing else to do. Um, and I had that bug, so I just played and played and played. Managed to get on the Simpson Cup team that year in 2013 at Royal Livham St. Anne's, um, which was good. It was the, uh, I think it was the only winning one I've been on. Um, but yeah, it just, I just got the bug and back, back then. So we're talking sort of eight years ago. I think the charity had only been around sort of three years or so. So there's a real good core group of sort of guys, um, who have been around since those early days. And we've all just become really good friends outside the charity. Um, we don't go to as many events as we used to because we don't 
sort of need them as, as much. We don't need that sort of guidance, um, that sort of reintegration, uh, which sort of golf is great for. We've like our sort of group is, you know, almost like the biggest success story of the On Course Foundation has had yeah. because it, it's got us back out sort of joining golf clubs. Um, we've got a large group of people now that we all socialize with. Um, yeah, so sort of that sort of the uh, that all sort of snowballed from that sort of first. So how many Simpson Cups have you played in? I've played in four now. I did 2013, 2014, and then 18, and this year's one. Um, so you have three Simpson Cup with both legs. Yeah. And then and I know towards the end, so 18, how did how was that different than the first two? Because you said you're struggling quite a bit with it. So I think 2018 was just when it, start to sort of creep into my head that you know it's getting a lot worse it was just a lot of sort of pain pain management you know sort of making sure i was taking painkillers sort of every day throughout the day just to keep on top of it um just so it was in how is that of- like affecting you though um i don't Obviously think it takes the pain away but like yeah you're probably not the same person now that you were under some narcotics I never really sort of struggled with them. I don't think. I I don't know why. I Good. just I've never. So I was on I was on sort of a tramadol like three times a day. But as soon as I thought I didn't need it, I just wouldn't take it. I I never like struggled with like being addicted to them or never made me drowsy things like that. A few times, sort of, I'd forgotten I'd taken them, and then like you have a few beers, and and that never ends well. But um yeah i never i never really struggled i never really felt like i wasn't like the same person as i as i sort of always have been that's good that's like the the best thing that can possibly happen yeah not a lot of people are like that a lot yeah i know very many people have struggled um and yeah i just i've just got lucky well i say lucky i just i've never felt never felt those effects right and coming out of the military what what did you plan on doing with the rest of your life. I mean, one chapter is kind of the chapter that you, you grew up building towards and then ultimately succeeding in doing kind of closed on you. Yeah. So what was next? I don't know. I'm st- still searching for that answer. <laughs> no, I, I think because I came out of the military um, a lot earlier, you know, I, I plan to, you know, that was my career. That was my lifelong career. Um, coming out of the military sort of in a I guess you know like I said I did three years of rehab but it's still a short sort of period of time I'm trying to focus on getting better rather than focusing on what I wanted to do next and I remember getting asked a lot um sort of by like my recovery officer things like that what do you want to do you know you've got to think about what you want to do next and I was like look I don't know what I want to do next like and that's fine by me you know I'm gonna I, I think I left in March I was like I'm gonna take six months off do a bit of traveling enjoy myself and then we'll sort of go from there but i don't know what i want to do so i'm not going to be rushed into something um and yeah i'm still sort of searching for that answer now but i think living in the pain and the constant sort of surgeries or trying to get my leg as good as possible whilst i still had it i've never really felt like i can like focus like on something like because there's always the possibility of I've got another surgery around the corner or I'm going to try and do this treatment. So I've never really been able to sort of think, right. Well, there's always been treatment or rehab in the background, sort of, I guess, sort of stopping me from sort of making a big sort of career decision. But at the end of the day, I I just don't know what I want to do. Um, And I still don't. And, um, you know, I don't, it's, I'd like to know, but, I'm not also putting so much pressure on myself that I rush into something I don't want to do. So what um, are you getting on? You, you're, the, the weather's turning now. There's no golf that you can play. What are you doing yeah. to occupy all your time? Um, walking Outside the dog. Outside of your new dog. <laughs> yeah. So I played last week. I played for the first time since the Simpson Cup. Um, so it's a nice little sort of five-week break or so um, without touching the clubs. But I don't know. Um, I'm... So growing up, I used to box. Um, I was a boxer. That was the thing I loved. Um, since being injured, I've just turned to coaching because it keeps me sort of keeps me in the 
sport keeps me connected to it and I, and I still love that so I still coach boxing um I run a little gym and so that keeps me busy and so between that walking the dog a little bit of golf practice not too much in the winter but yeah a little bit I um somehow the days sort of fill get filled up yeah that's good as long as you're not bugging the shit out of your girlfriend that's all that matters no 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 don't get no, yourself she, in trouble. Um, <laughs> she'll set me on tasks around the house and and sort of food shops <laughs> things like that but yeah i think my plan is my plan was sort of after um having my leg amputated was to rehab properly take my time with it don't rush to do too much too early um which sort of people say um you know it's, it's about 18 months or so um to sort of rehab it to get to a point where you're going to be steady and then my plan was to sort of rehab and then enjoy like six month summer, like spring, summer this year, um, playing golf, doing what I want to do, take, having a bit of sort of time, you know, me time, so to speak, go on a few sort of golf trips, things like that. So that was my plan. And then sort of go, right, what do I want to do next? Um, however, the sort of pandemic, all these lockdowns sort of slowed everything down. So I've been able to rehab fine. Um, and I'm, I'm in a good spot. I can do whatever I want to do on my leg, but I haven't quite had to, like been able to sort of enjoy my time off. Um, not good, sort of going back to work. So I think I'm probably sort of going to take the next, probably until sort of summertime next year, um, enjoy myself and sort of really sort of, but at the same time, figure out what I want to do and maybe start working towards, um, what I want to do as well as sort of enjoy it. You join a club. Yeah, I'm a member of a club. Yeah. How's that tied into your life? It's good. Um, so I joined because I we just moved to the area sort of a couple couple years ago, really now. Well I did. Um and obviously have my leg off. I hadn't really played loads of golf last year. Um but this year I sort of joined a club up here. But a lot of the golf I've played this year has been with the On Course Foundation and for the sort of Simpson Cup qualifiers, things like that. So I actually haven't played a hell of a lot at my club. Um, so I've not really met loads of people there, but um, I've met a few and it's it's a real sort of chilled out vibe. You know, it's not stuffy or anything like that. Um, so I'm looking forward to sort of over the winter, having a few lessons there with the pro, uh, playing a few more rounds with some of the guys there and sort of hopefully find a sort of good group of people to, to play with. I think um, the one thing that surprised me and how we started talking is that you you follow No Laying Up. Yeah. I didn't just meet yeah. you at the Simpson Cup like everybody else that I met there that's like, oh, well, what do you do? People didn't, <laughs> didn't really have a clue. So how did you get turned on to No Laying Up and when did that start and kind of how's it developed? So I guess... I probably started listening to the podcast three, three years ago or so, I guess. And then maybe sort of following on Twitter as well at the same time. But I, I'm sort of my, um, most of my social media is just golf and golf related things. So, um, I'm just like a, a sucker for any sort of golf content really. So yeah, I think I started listening to the podcast probably like three years ago. Or so, um, three, four years ago, I can't remember. Um, maybe even longer actually thinking about it with all the sort of coronavirus and that it's just like it feels like 18 months of just <laughs> right. like it just gets lost doesn't it because i remember sitting at work um and i used to work for my friend's business um in in the workshop and i remember just having podcasts on and catching up with just all the episodes so i, I probably listened to like hundreds of episodes <laughs> in like a week just sort of filling up the, the working day headphones on working um but yeah i i've been following for a while and then um i'm a sucker for for your guys youtube content as well and <laughs> there's there's not much there's nothing i don't think better sort of golf content out there including professional golf as well as your guys stuff is the most enjoyable stuff to watch oh we, we appreciate it and that was maybe yeah. a shameless plug on my part but i was gonna say yeah without me sounding like a little fanboy <laughs> when i when i first uh put something out about simpson cup and how i was excited to go out and you reach out and you're like hey man like i i'm i'm a player but i don't know if i'm gonna like i don't know if we're gonna be there or not and yeah. truly 
I don't think people understood that still due to COVID that it was a, a very much a last second, not just decision, but the approvals needed for the Great Britain team to even travel over to the States to compete this year. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember, I remember reaching out to, to you after sort of your, um, your little, uh, downrange interview, I guess with, yeah. with DJ. Um, cause I didn't realize you were a sort of veteran. Um, and then, yeah, so we spoke just before the Simpson cup, I think as well, after you said you were going out and that was probably the week we were supposed to fly and we still didn't know if we were going. Um, so we were supposed to fly on a Saturday, Friday, we got a message mid morning saying, if we haven't heard for, by 5 PM, it's not happening. We'll make contingencies. We'll have a few rounds somewhere in England. Um, you know, all's not lost, but you won't be going. So five o'clock sort of rolls around, heard nothing. And I'm half packed sort of thinking about, you know, are we going? Are we not? So I think, all right, we're not going. So I thought, let's go to a shop and dr drown my sorrows with, with a girlfriend with a couple of bottles of red wine. <laughs> anyway, 10 p.m. comes. Guys, it may text message comes through in the group chat. May still be happening. Need to be ready to go. You need to be at the airport tomorrow morning. And I was like, it's just like roller coaster of emotions. I'd sort of sort of resigned to the fact that we weren't going. All of a sudden, then we are going. Now I've got to finish packing and I've had a couple of bottles of red wine. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all magic. And then it comes through. We're still waiting on clearance. We should know by like 3 a.m. So I think, and I only live an hour away from London, which is where we were flying from. So it wasn't too bad. But the rest of the team sort of had gone up the day before. So they're all at a hotel Friday night. And they, again, like me, drowning in sorrows. Right. <laughs> but a big group of them. So they had a little bit more than me. Um, yeah, 3 a.m. comes around, we get a message saying, yep, it's on. Get to the airport for normal time. So I think, cool. So I've not been able to sleep very well because you sort of, you don't know what's happening. Get in my car, um, Saturday morning, driving to the airport. I'm about 20 minutes away. Text message comes through. We're not flying till Sunday now. <laughs> so we'll sort out hotels for you Saturday night. Sort out around a golf somewhere in England if you want. But we're going, but it's it's going to be Sunday. So we all met up at a hotel and none of us think we're still going. We think this, they're just sort of prolonging this. They're prolonging, cancelling it. So all day Saturday, none of us think we're going go to bed Saturday night. No one really still thinks we're properly going. Get to the airport and yeah, they just walk through as if as if normal because we were waiting on a sort of a waiver. Um, so obviously we've not been able to travel, travel to the States until sort of November. And this was obviously back in October. So we were spy, uh, flying on a um, special sort of waiver. So the only sort of Brits through the airport on the plane. But yeah, got to the airport and all went smoothly no issues whatsoever landed we half expected to land land in jfk and then sort of all get ferried off into a room and so yeah, what are you guys doing there yeah you're not you're not allowed here you're a little sort of tom hanks and terminal sort of scenario <laughs> but no it all went through it was, it was like there was no issues whatsoever um but it wasn't the best start we missed our sort of practice round um so there's our excuse for losing um but no it was it was a it was a like thick and fast uh, week. It was sort of tough. It was tiring, but at the same time, it was the best Simpson Cup I've played on. Um, it, just the sort of the way the way the uh, the creek sort of welcomed us all there, and they couldn't. They literally couldn't do enough for us, and it was amazing. And to play that course um, was unbelievable as well. It was probably the best course I played. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I, yeah. I cannot say that like enough times the course the the layout the way that they condition it the people that work there and definitely the host because i was treated just as as well as you were it's it was phenomenal and the the show that they put on was one of a kind for sure yeah um yeah i'm i'm sort of in my this is where i'm sat now is sort of going to be my sort of so-called office but it's just full of like golf junk at the moment like memorabilia everywhere and I'm just surrounded by like Simpson Cup stuff and all the, the stuff we're given from the creek, um, like the members, they they literally couldn't have done enough for us. So many times we're sort of waiting for an Uber back to our accommodation or something like that. And then a member would just go, oh, no, no, just, 
just jump uh, in. Jump in. You know, we'll take you back. And we were hosted every night somewhere different and we just laid on like such a spread every night. It was unbelievable. Um it really was. Um it really was sort of something I won't forget, that's for sure. Well, it makes you excited for Simpson Cup next year. Yeah, yeah. We don't know where it is. Normally it sort of varies. One year it's in um in England and then sort of the next year it's in the States, but um i think there's sort of a going to be a little bit of a change up we're not sure yet they don't know they don't quite know where it's going to be um or how it's going to work but hopefully i can keep my golf in a good good sort of place and sort of make the team again um because it's definitely sort of an experience that you sort of uh you don't forget yet. well i don't think that's going to be an issue you're a stick i don't know why you oh, wouldn't wow. make the team i don't know the second hole on that four balls day and you were sort of following our group and then sort of 80 yard approach into the green and then it's just a cold hard shank left (laughs) (laughs) you're still getting used to it it blows my mind that literally i mean you might have played golf for you know over 10 years now but basically you started brand new again like a year ago yeah not only a year ago but a year ago in lockdown so it's not like you've gotten that many reps yeah um i'm quite lucky because it's i'm left-handed and it's my left leg so it's my rear leg um where i have the so where i wear the prosthetic and so fortunately it doesn't really affect my golf swing that much um i can really sort of i can still get through the ball um pretty well i don't sort of have any limitations in that respect but yeah like you say it's a sort of new learning again um took a little bit of time but the hardest thing i've found with playing golf with with sort of one leg has been sort of putting sort of trying to make sure you're sort of all aligned putting things like that because you can get away with it a little bit with your sort of long game but trying to make sure you know you, my feet are lined up and it's little movements to get them in position and right when i sort of first start playing again i sort of think i was doing a little movement and then all of a sudden i've like taken half a step half step forward with it and i'm like all right i gotta go back a bit and but it didn't take too long to be honest um and i've just sort of i've been sort of lucky enough to play play pretty much every week and to keep my golf in a good good spot well you're an inspiration to watch that's for sure because <laughs> it just like you say it, it might be you know your your rear leg on your swing but there's still a ton of power there and there's still a, a ton of precision you got a hell of a golf game yeah my my aim this winter is to sort of knuckle down because i want to play in some of the um european sort of disabled golf association sort of events um sort of next you gotta give mike a run for his money i know me and mike played so much golf together because we both lived in the same area we were members of the same club but yeah my goal is to like get as good as i can through winter sort of i i never really had lessons i've had the odd bit here and there with the sort of on course coaches but i've never really like properly practiced sort of anything i practiced to sort of keep keep the same rather than actually work on mechanics of the golf the golf swing things like that but i'm gonna my plan now is to sort of focus on getting as good as i can get my handicap as low as possible um and yeah hopefully sort of get get involved with uh some of these disabled golf events and sort of get on they have like a world ranking um sort of order for them as well handicap and sort of scratch um which i think mike's been a sort of top of the top of the rankings for a a couple of times uh, i don't think he's there at the moment but he's been there a couple of times so yeah my aim is to sort of get on that track really i don't have any aspirations to go sort of pro or anything like him um but i want to sort of now challenge myself to get as good as possible and work hard at it and uh, see where that takes me i love it absolutely love it yeah and you'll you'll be uh trying out for simpson cup team United States? I don't know. I, uh, I've i thought a lot about it. I'm sure you go through this a lot too, is that I look at a lot of people that I, I surround myself with and I, I think of how fortunate that I am. You know, everybody that's uh, a veteran struggles with, with some things and I've, you know my story and I've been deployed a ton and have seen and done a lot of crazy stuff. But I also know how fortunate I am to to come out the other end and have everything intact and outside of, uh, you know, some, some crazy thoughts in my head that I figured out a way to, to move on in my life. I get to do my dream and play dream courses every day for my job. And I'm so fortunate for that. 
But at the same time, I think it would be so cool to get involved in the organization, to have an opportunity to play on the team and, and surround yourself with people who are the same, the same struggles. You know, they might, everybody might not have the same physical struggles or ailments or, but I, I think it would be something that would be really, really cool. And I am, I'm thinking about it. I don't yeah, want to beat you definitely. up, but <laughs> I mean, well, if, it would be if I see you, if I see you get, make the team, I'll, uh, I'll get my handicap back up. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like sort of, yes, we play, it's a golf tournament, but sort of, it's much more than that. Just being surrounded uh, and being the camaraderie and fellowship of like, yeah, just being yeah, yeah, around it. It's crazy. Being in the military is unlike any other job. You know, you live, you live with your coworkers. You go through the most stressful of times with your coworkers. Um, so, like, and it's it's a life, isn't it? Being in the military, yeah. it's um, you. You all think the same way. Um, like some of my friends who sort of I deployed with. If if we'd met, if neither of us were in the military and we'd met, we probably wouldn't be friends. But right, those shared experiences. It just chucks. A, it's like a melting pot of people from all different backgrounds, um, all different sort of circumstances. And it just, it's like a leveler. It just chucks you all in. And that's what the Simpson Cup and the On Course Foundation does. It like brings back that sort of regimental feel. It feels like you're still in the army. Well, Sam, I appreciate you taking the time. Yes. Talking about your story. And hopefully, you know, everybody can, can take a little bit out of it. But most importantly, you know, life throws you some cards that you're not really uh, prepared to to receive at the time you figure out a way to deal with them and then ultimately find a place to to get on with your life and make it so you're living the most enjoyable one possible it's all about moving forward isn't it you know you've yep. got to keep moving forward you can't dwell but no thank you for thank you for having me apologies for the uh, dodgy internet connection <laughs> it's all good <laughs>